Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Now, you will recall that the book of Colossians is dealing with a heresy that at least develops into something that later is called Gnosticism, and it's a very serious set of errors indeed that were found there. But as we've worked our way through the book of Colossians, we have come to some of the very high points in all of Scripture. Uh, For example, in chapter 1, the description of Christ and his preeminence and other places in the book of Colossians. This morning, as we come to the end, we come to some things that you might think are quite ordinary. But even ordinary things in God's Word are quite extraordinary because they come to us ultimately from our God. So we come to chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word. This is the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be with, be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I wish we still wrote letters. I love writing letters. I love receiving letters. And we seem to be just so, so busy and so tied to electronics. 
I don't mean emails, I mean letters. How wonderful on those rare occasions that we receive an actual letter in the mail. And it's a wonderful thing to know that the Lord included, along with history and poetry and apocalypse and gospel, real letters written by Paul and others to real life situations. And the ending of Paul's epistles are fascinating to me. I hope they are to you as well. There we see his last salvos. Don't forget this, remember this. And then also we see his humanness as he greets others with whom he works or sends greetings to those he knows personally. The sort of passage we have this morning is the kind that we usually read over very quickly when we're reading through the Bible and we don't spend much time with it. However, as we turn to the end of Colossians, we can expect to see something of Paul's heart and through his heart, the heart of our Heavenly Father. What does Paul want the Colossians to do? What does he want for them? What does he want from them? And we see here how personal Paul is, how filled with love for God's people, and how he longs for the gospel to be believed and extended. So let's begin as we look at this passage this morning with all of these disparate things. Let's begin with this really exciting point. First, prayer for the open door. Prayer for the open door. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Let's read them again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Who here does not need a reminder to pray, to be watchful, to persevere in it, to be thankful in it, to stick to it, to develop the good habit of prayer. Now let me give you some advice on prayer. It's not necessary that you pray long prayers. Now I think there's a time for that and a place for that, but my point is simply that Paul wants the fellow believers to whom he writes in his epistles to learn how to constantly commune with God so that frankly, over the diapers and the soap suds and over soccer and the math test, walking and running, working, we're always communing with God and we're always in a spirit of prayer. We learn to live in an attitude and spirit of prayer. And thanksgiving, of course, is the pinnacle and this helps you to have a heart that is awake while you pray when you are thankful to God. I'm thankful this morning that I'm here and not in Nepal. Are you? I'm thankful that as we pray, we can pray for those who are in Nepal. I'm thankful that God can open a door of opportunity for the gospel in Nepal. So he encourages prayer for the preaching of the gospel, for an open door for the word. Some years now, Paul has been a prisoner of the Roman Empire. In Philippians 1.9, as he is a prisoner, we learn that even members of the Praetorian Guard had believed in the gospel. And you remember how he speaks similarly at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. There he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
So maybe as we pray for Pastor Saeed, imprisoned in Iran, and rightly we pray for him to come home and to be returned to his family and to his church and to his own country, maybe the prevailing prayer that we should be praying for this brother in Christ is for an open door for the gospel. Have you thought of that? Wouldn't it be wonderful if those guards who now torture him, watching his consistent and faithful Christian living, wouldn't it be wonderful if they asked him, what makes you this way? And he spoke the gospel to them, and throughout that prison, guards and prisoners came to faith in Christ? Shouldn't we be praying that way? Does it occur to us to pray that way? One open door for us, if we want to think about open doors, is to pray that as the gospel is preached by your pastors and others from this pulpit, that there will be an open door in the hearts of those who hear. One way to pray for an open door is to pray for the use of the internet. We have three different ways in which people may tap into sermons that are preached from this pulpit. Only one of those three is traceable. So we don't know from where or how many are listening to the sermons, but that one that is traceable has shown to us that we even have people in Islamic countries and communist countries listening to the sermons from this pulpit. Will you pray for open doors? Will you pray? Does that mean anything to you? Surely it does. Will you pray that the gospel will be extended throughout the world? I was visited by a brother from way up in New York State this week. He was down in this area, and he wanted to come in to say how the Lord has used the sermons of your pastors that he's been listening to on the Internet in order to do some marvelous things in his life. It would be inappropriate for me to say what, but I had no idea. That's an open door for which we should be praying together as we pray for the gospel to be expanded. And so he says, this is how I ought to speak. It's a little word, day, in the Greek that reads really, this is how I must speak. It is his burden to speak. It is his passion to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of preaching in verse 4 is to make the gospel plain. And so Paul says he must speak. Don't let us preach without your prayers. That's what he's saying here. Will you pray for an open door? He doesn't say, pray that I may get out of prison. He says, pray for an open door for the gospel while I am in prison. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the world's greatest need? Do you? Yes. Now let me ask you to answer this question privately. How often am I praying, how fervently, how much for open doors for the gospel? Second thing we see as we move along, encouragement for wise living. Encouragement for wise living. Verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now here we have walking and talking. 
Go on walking in wisdom, making the best use of the time. What does he mean by the time? The time that we have to live for Christ, the time to speak the gospel, the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. Time for Paul is eschatological in nature. And as someone has said, walk always comes before talk, and that is right. And so Paul says you need to walk wisely with regard to outsiders, unbelievers. If people come to a conclusion that Christians are nuts, don't let it be because we're acting like nuts. <laughs> Unbelievers are watching our lives. Do you remember a few weeks ago that I gave the illustration of Dr. Ferguson who was in a, a place of business and there was one secretary who always was cheerfully working while the others sloughed off and didn't work in anything like that manner? And the answer from the boss, who himself was not a Christian, was, oh, her? She's a Christian. That's really the way it ought to be. A friend of mine told me this week that for the longest time, the greatest hindrance to his coming to faith in Christ was what people who claimed to be Christians said and how they lived, because they didn't match up. Now, I'm not suggesting perfection. We're sinners. We confess our sins every day. We are children of the living God, however, and it should show in the way in which we walk. So Paul says, use your time the Lord gives you wisely, and the use of your time is the test of your Christian character. Then he says, talk in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So modern media will never remove the necessity of the preached word or the necessity of your speaking with your friend or relative or neighbor or co-worker about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The walk is first. Your life is first. But no one ever came to faith in Christ without words. No one ever came to faith in Christ without knowing they were sinners in need of a Savior, that Christ Jesus died for sinners on a cross and rose from the dead. It requires words to put the gospel out there for sinners to believe. When David Jones was with us last week in our missions conference, he stressed to us that you don't have to be good at it. With Muslims, he said, you don't have to have an answer for every question. Just tell them the truth about Christ. But Paul does say, let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt. That is, be kind, be gracious, be loving, be winsome. What does he mean, seasoned with salt? What do you think he means? To be seasoned with salt, you may say, is appropriate to the person to whom you're speaking in the situation. Whatever you say must be appropriate. Maybe it means having flavor, a kind of winsomeness. Maybe also it means because salt is a preservative, never participate in corrupt, low, smutty speech. The parallel in Ephesians suggests that he has that in mind. Wholesome speech that you may know how to answer each one. Because the Christian should never participate in corrupt, corrupt, low, and smutty speech, but should answer each person according to his need. So the Christian is going to speak, and will, most of us here will never be expert apologists. Basically, what Paul is saying here is speak to each one 
how to answer the child, the inquirer, the doubter, or even the fool with appropriate gospel witness. So Paul says to us something very simple. I'm calling upon you Colossians, you members of Covenant Presbyterian Church by extension, to live a life that will create an opportunity to speak a word for Christ and to take that opportunity and with wholesome speech, words that each person needs to hear, speak to them gracious words seasoned with salt. That's not hard to understand, is it? But are we doing it? That's the call of the Christian. Then we move along in the text, and the third thing we see is the importance of the communion of the saints. We find this in verses 7 through 17, and he begins with kind words about Tychicus and Onesimus. In verse 7 he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that we may, he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul is introducing the persons who are carrying the letter to the church at Colossae and to the nearby churches at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Tychicus is mentioned five times in connection with Paul in the New Testament. He accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. He was involved in taking the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem to Jerusalem. And toward the end of his life, Paul has sent him to minister in Crete and in Ephesus. And here he is described as a beloved brother and a faithful servant and a fellow bond slave in the Lord. That is, he obviously has given his life totally over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Tychicus would deliver the letter to Colossians and Philemon, also the letter of Ephesians. He would tell them details of Paul's circumstances and those of Timothy and others with whom they work. Then he mentions Onesimus here in verse 9 as accompanying Tychicus. He was a runaway slave. The epistle of Philemon is all about this person, the runaway slave. And he says he is a believer. And you are to treat him as a believer, reading between the lines. He is one of your number, Paul says. And together they would inform the church about Paul's circumstances. So you see, one of the exciting things about reading the letters of Paul is that they were written in real situations to real people with real struggles in life, with real conversions, real faith in Christ. And I love to go to that map on my wall of Asia Minor that was done by archaeologist William Ramsey and say, here is Colossae, here is Hierapolis, here is Laodicea, here is Ephesus, and to realize that the gospel came into the real world. God came into this real world in Christ, and he has sent Paul into the real world, and he has sent the gospel into the real world, and he has sent us into the real world to labor for his name. But notice here also that he sends greetings from Rome in verses 10 through 14, and he mentions his Jewish co-workers, Aristarchus. Now this is interesting. In verse 10 it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. But literally it's not fellow prisoner. Literally the word means prisoner of war. Aristarchus is a prisoner of war. And I don't think the apostle is saying he's sharing my bonds I think what he means is, 
He's a spiritual captive of Jesus Christ. Then he mentions Mark. Mark had abandoned Paul in his first missionary journey, and now they are reconciled, and he wrote the gospel that we call Mark. And in the book of 2 Timothy, toward the end of his life, in the last words that Paul is writing, he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for ministry. So it's a wonderful thing to see that once they were not reconciled, now they are reconciled in such a way that Mark is in the full flow of assistance to Paul's ministry. And then he mentions Jesus' justice. Do you know where else we see Jesus' justice mentioned in the Bible? Does it occur to you? Nowhere. Jesus' justice is only mentioned here, which is a reminder that one does not have to be well-known to be faithful and does not have to be well-known to be useful. These are co-workers in the kingdom of God. They have been brought out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, And Paul explicitly says they were Jews. They are the only ones of the circumcision that worked with Paul. They're Jews. In verses 12 and 13, he mentions Colossian co-workers. Will you look at it? Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So the Colossian co-workers, these are Gentiles. Epaphras has already been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, as having brought to Paul in Rome word of the heretics that are threatening the church in Colossae. He too was called a bond slave of Christ. He was a faithful pastor who agonized in prayer for these people. Can't you see this pastor on his knees pleading before God? agonizing in prayer before God, praying for the church. And Paul uses an athletic metaphor here, one of intense struggle and energy because this brother realized that false teaching destroys assurance of faith. And so he is praying that they may be firmly established in the assurance that comes in knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Epaphras prays strenuously for assurance And for maturity, just as I can assure you, Pastor McDonald and I pray for you. Then he mentions Luke in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now, we could spend all morning with Luke, but we we won't. But Luke is with Paul the Apostle all the way to the end of his life. And then he mentions, who is it? Look, Luke and Demas. And as you come to the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, do you remember what he said about Demas? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He seems like a faithful brother now. By the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, Demas has forsaken the gospel. Someone has rightly said, it is sad to see a man break down at the end. Now what do we learn from this? 
Well, do you remember what we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11? Speaking of the effects of the gospel, Paul says in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Here are the Jews, here are the Gentiles, believers in Christ, and all of the racial barriers have been removed in the cross. Every racial barrier has been removed in the cross of Jesus Christ, and Jew and Gentile are laboring together for one purpose, the spread of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, because the gospel unites in the purpose of proclaiming Jesus Christ to a lost world. But that's not all. There are final directions that he gives in verses 15 through 17. Look at those directions. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So he sends greetings because the church of Jesus Christ is the love of Paul's life under the Lordship of Christ. And he sends greetings to a people, not to a building, because the building is not the church. I have no objection to speaking of a church building, but this is not the church. The church is the people who gather there. And in this instance, they're gathering in a house. Now, there are certain people today that think that it's called the house church movement. They think that scripture is prescribing that we meet in houses. That's really patently ridiculous. It was the only practical solution in the New Testament era, and certainly the modern house church movement is off the mark in finding a requirement in such statements. But there they're meeting in a house can mention the person by name who is hospitable and opens her door to the church, probably in Laodicea. And then he says, I want you to read the epistle. Read it. Read this one. Send it there. Let them read it there. Take the epistle that's been sent to Laodicea and you read it also. And the verb that is used here is the regular verb for reading out loud. Scripture is read out loud in public in early church worship, just as it was in the synagogue and continues to be in our church today. This also, by the way, indicates how churches got copies of the New Testament. They circulated and they were read out loud in congregations. Undoubtedly, they were copied. And that's why we have more manuscript for the New Testament than any other, and I make, this is not hyperbole, than any other ancient writings. Far more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other ancient document. I'll give you an example. For example, we have nine or ten manuscripts for Caesar's Gaelic Wars, good manuscripts. And the manuscripts are separated from the original time of writing. By the time we have the manuscripts, the separation is 900 years. And yet no one doubts that he's reading Caesar's Gaelic Wars when he reads the Gaelic Wars. For the New Testament, we have over 4,000 extant manuscripts, 10,000 copies of translations into Latin and other languages, and the separation from the time of the New Testament's writing 
to the earliest manuscript is less than 200 years. So the epistle was to be read in Colossae, also that would come to them from Laodicea, which is probably the epistle of Ephesians, which was being circulated to the churches. And then he adds a message to Archippus in verse 17, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. He's mentioned here, he's also mentioned in Philemon 2. Paul said similar words to Timothy, fulfill your ministry, and it seems to be a solemn warning to ministers to be careful, to be sure that you are fulfilling your ministry. Maybe Archippus is slacking in his zeal. Maybe it's just a warning not to slack in his zeal. I can't know. But ultimately the warning comes from the Lord to the minister to fulfill his ministry. So what Paul, what Paul is doing here from which every one of us can benefit in all of these greetings... Here are my Jewish co-workers. Here are those from Colossae. Here are others who are Gentiles. Is he is stressing the communion of the saints. These things were not just polite additions. Not just customary. Expected from Paul's pen. These things are very personal to Paul. He mentions these things. These needs and these names. Because Paul loves the church. He loves God's people. He loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I simply ask you the question, do you? I mean warts and all. With all of the struggles, all of the failings, do you love God's people? And then he says, not only do I send this out because it shows that I love the people of God and it comes from my heart, but I want to stress that when this epistle comes, you're to read it. Or to put it another way, the word of God has central place in the churches to which Paul writes. Now, I don't know how to make it more plain than that. Love for God's people, love for God's word are at the core of of the Christian life. If that characterizes us, if we love his word and we love his people, if that characterizes us, then we'll be faithful and we will continue on. If we forsake the word and love for the church, we will go wrong. So I ask you this question, Christian. Coming out of this simple command to read aloud, do you also read privately? Do you love to hear the word read and proclaimed, but are you steeping in the word? Let me tell you, if you are not steeping in the word, you will be confused by the world. If you are not steeping in the word, your mind is going to be confused. Your heart is going to be far from the Lord. I cannot stress this enough. Christian people are people of the book and people of the church. We love God's word and we love his people. So Christians do not live for self-gratification. Your culture does. But you and I need to be very decisive and play no games. Are we going to live for the Lord? Are we going to live with the word at the core of our lives? Are we going to be focused on love for God's people Or are we going to live for self? 
You cannot love the word and the church and love self. So do you know Christ? Because it shows by loving his word and loving his people. I told you these were ordinary things. But they're extraordinary too, aren't they? They're everyday things. But they call upon my life and yours to believe and repent. There's a fourth and final thing I want you to see in the text. In this ending of his letter. And it is that Paul signs his letter. Paul signs his letter. Now you find it in verse 18. Look at it, will you? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, Paul customarily dictated his letters to an amanuensis, to a secretary. So Paul would say, this is what, by divine inspiration, I want to put down on the papyrus. The amanuensis would write down, in Greek, the word. And then, of course, the letter would be sent, but not before Paul added additional remarks and his own signature. Let me give you an example of this because it's fascinating. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Here's an example. 2 Thessalonians 3, 17. Paul comes to the conclusion of his letter and he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we go back to Colossians 4 and Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Alfred in his exposition says this. When we read of his chains, see, he says, I write this greeting with my own hand, remember my chains. When we read of his chains, we should not forget that they moved over the paper as he wrote. His hand was chained to the soldier that kept him. So there's Paul. He's written these high and lofty things about Christ comes to the end of his epistle and writes these very ordinary things that we all need to hear. And have you ever thought that as he takes the stylus from his amanuensis, dipped in ink, and he writes in Greek his name, and he writes this final benediction, that his chains, he's chained to the guard, and his chains are there clanking as he writes. Can you imagine the chains getting in the way? Or perhaps the soldier is impatient. Hurry up, Paul. I don't know. But Paul writes and signs his own name to his letter. Paul wants them to remember his imprisonment. So the last thing he writes after he signs his name is, before the benediction, remember my chains. Why does he say that? He's not saying, remember my chains and pray that I get out of here. Paul never asked for that, not once. He is saying, 
what he said earlier. Remember me while I am in chains that my ministry will be effective here. Remember my imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. Remember my chains for the sake of the extension of the kingdom of God. So that you and I should also be able to say one to another, pray for me because of my circumstances. And yes, I want to be out of the circumstance, but pray that the kingdom will be advanced in my circumstance. That's his chief concern. To pray for him, to ask that the open door be given for gospel proclamation. And then the apostle brings the simple benediction. It's a very simple one. Look at it. End of the book. Last words. Paul says, grace be with you. Wasn't it grace that they were in danger of forgetting? Wasn't the Colossian heresy, like all heresies, substituting for Christ, works righteousness and false teaching and a denial of grace? Where would we be without the grace of God? Where would we be without knowing that He has granted to us His favor, though we are ill deserving? And every Christian needs to continue in the knowledge of the grace of God. So basically in saying, God's grace be with you, Paul is saying to the Christians there and to us Christians this morning, don't go backward. Walk in grace. Don't forsake grace. Don't forsake truth. Don't forsake the gospel. Don't walk backward. You know that line of T.S. Eliot, that we live in an age that advances progressively backwards? That's your culture. Don't follow it. Now I wonder if you have wondered this. We come to the end of the book of Colossians. Paul has strenuously preached Christ to these people who are in danger of forgetting him. Well, did the Colossians hear what Paul wrote? Did they heed his warning? I guess we can't know. But I would suggest that the very fact that we have the letter in our hands this morning indicates that they did heed the warning and that they did remain Christ-centered. But I think there's one additional question that is even more important than that. Did they heed the warning... Did they follow on? Did they continue in the gospel? One more important question. Will you?